Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. Most biblical scholars agree that Psalm 58 was written by David against King Saul and those in King Saul's court who had condemned David to death and labeled him as a traitor. And David was forced to hide in caves to escape them. David's anger against those who would wield power unjustly and those who would do so with evil intent is not a unique problem for him. It has been a recurring theme throughout human history. On April 15, 1865, Just six days after the end of the Civil War and one day after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Johnson was sworn in as the 17th President of the United States of America. Now, Abraham Lincoln had decided to make Johnson his Vice President to show a sense of unity in the country. Because Johnson was a Jacksonian Democrat who was born in North Carolina, and he was pro-slavery. But after Lincoln's death, the fate of Reconstruction fell into the hands of Johnson to oversee. And as Congress tried and tried to pass more legislation that would help the men and women who were freed from slavery, Johnson continued to use his veto power to block these measures. Now, Johnson was eventually impeached in large part due to his his attempt to throttle Reconstruction, but the damage had been done. In short, the freed slaves were not given the full help that they needed from the government because of one man who wielded power unjustly and with cruel intent. Government officials and politicians are given special authority and they're given power in this world. And though not all are evil, there is a great capacity for evil for those who rule from these offices. And it is these evil people in authority that, that David is writing about in Psalm 58. Specifically, David is writing against those who would use their power to do evil due to the evil that is in their hearts. It has corrupted them, and it has corrupted the way they rule. I mentioned Johnson's racial bias against helping freed slaves, but more people are familiar with people like Adolf Hitler and his Holocaust, or Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward, or Pol Pot's genocide in Cambodia. And I know that when I mention evil rulers, even some of you might have modern politicians in mind, regardless of where you land politically. This morning, We're going to use Psalm 58 as our roadmap to consider what does God have to say about evil rulers, and my hope is that you hear this. We must not look to rulers for victory because Christ has already earned victory for us. We must not look to rulers for victory because Christ has already earned victory for us. And I want to explore this main idea through these two points. One, the wicked gods, that's a lowercase g, and two are victorious gods. So that is one, the wicked gods, and two, our victorious God. So first, the wicked gods. And the reason that I call these wicked rulers gods with a lowercase g is because that is how David describes them here in verse 1. 
The, the Hebrew word here is Elem, which stems from the word for God in Hebrew, El. But when David uses this word, he's, he's saying that these men are powerful and great. He is describing them as rulers. But the word Elem actually literally means silent ones. So when David writes, do you de- indeed decree what is right, silent ones, he's saying that these wicked rulers are silent when it comes to goodness. That when they speak, when they decree, when they make laws, it is with wicked intent. Their decrees are evil, but how else does he describe them? Starting in verse 2 and going to verse 5, he, he says this. He says, their hearts devise wrongs. Their hands deal violence. They are wicked from birth. David is saying that from the beginning of their lives, these rulers were bent toward evil. Now, that might give some of us pause. We question if it's truly possible for anyone to be bent for evil towards, from birth. And the reality is, we all are. We sometimes call this original sin, that we are born into this world as sinners. That even David says this about himself in Psalm 51 when he writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are all born with the capacity and inclination towards sin. We are born into the wound and curse and of sin and creation itself. No one teaches a child how to lie. No one has to train a toddler how to steal a toy just because they want it. The Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton writes this on original sin. He says, The doctrine of original sin is the only philosophy that has been empirically validated by 3,500 years of human history. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we do not have to look far beyond the mirror to see that people are inclined towards sin from birth. But for Christians, when we put our faith in God, we are made new, and we can only do good in the work that God does through us. But for David, these wicked rulers, they forever lack goodness. They don't know God. They are not righteous in his eyes. They spew venom from their lips, he says, and they have the power to exercise wickedness in this world because of the power that they hold. When someone like this is given power, then their sin impacts every single person that they rule. Unjust laws are passed, rights are taken away, evil abounds, and injustice prevails in the courtroom. And no, I'm not saying that all politicians are purely evil because they are politicians. There are many politicians who seek justice and seek goodness, and there are many politicians who are truly Christian. But I will say this, all politicians are wounded by sin, just like all people are wounded by sin. And the nature of political office can magnify fallenness and even attract those who seek power. C.S. Lewis writes this in his preface for the Screwtape Letters. He says, The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Charles Dickens loved to paint. It is not done even in concentration camps and labor camps. In those, we see its final result. But it is conceived and is ordered in cleaned, carpeted, warmed, and well-lit offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the office of a thoroughly nasty business concern. 
political offices, and those offices which grant power may not cause the people that serve in them to be evil, but they do present one of the easiest avenues for evil to work through those people. And the question is then, why do we continue to turn to our leaders and our politicians for our victory? Why is it that every couple of years when a new federal election rolls around that we think if we can just get our candidate into office, then our problems will be solved? I think the answer is this. When we're young, we really don't care about politics. Sure, we may parrot the things that our parents tell us about politicians or the ways that the world works, but we don't really understand what we're talking about. But as we get older and we fill out our first tax form, or we try to buy a house, or we spend hours at the DMV, we try to get a passport, we pay hospital bills, we pay rent or our mortgage for the first time, we see injustice in the world, we start investing in our Roth IRAs and our 401ks, we see the rights and freedoms of people in this world being put in jeopardy, we start paying more attention to the news. We can become jaded by the frustrations of adult life and also enchanted by the promises that if we just save enough, if we just invest enough, if we just speak loud enough about injustice, if we just find enough foundation in the things that we can earn for ourselves, then we can have hope and we can have security in our future. And we see politicians offering that. They offer to make the injustice go away. They offer to put more money in our pockets to boost the stock market to make our neighborhoods safer. And over and over again, we put our stronghold and our hope to be in these people who make these promises, but over and over again, we get let down and we get angry when these promises don't pay off because our sense of security and our hope that we put in these people is threatened. Or to put it in short terms, because we think that safety and security and victory in this life is something that we can earn for ourselves, we put more trust in human rulers who ultimately fail us. So point one, the wicked gods know this, human rulers will always fail you if you put your hope for victory in them. David here in Psalm 58 knows what it's like to be failed by rulers. David was Saul's armor bearer. David had extreme respect for Saul. He served Saul to the best of his ability. And now, in return, Saul and the rulers of his court have declared David as a traitor. They have sentenced him to death. But David, in his loss of security, in his loss of hope, in his loss of victory, he teaches us where to turn. Point two, our victorious God. When I read this psalm earlier, David's anguished cry to God in verses 6 through 9 may have struck you as extreme. He asks God to break the evil ruler's teeth, to tear out their fangs. By this, he asks God to remove their ability to bite, to hurt people. He asks God to blunt their arrows, which removes their power and their ability to pass laws that hurt everyone. He asks God to dissolve them into slime like a snail. To make it as if they never even existed in the first place, as if, they, as if they'd never been born. If these men had been practicing evil from their infancy, then to David it makes sense to remove their stain on the world and make it as if they were never born in the first place. 
That's what David wants. David asks God to sweep them away, to make them vanish like running water. Why does David ask God for these things? So that in verse 10, he says it, the righteous might bathe in the blood of the wicked. Wow. And the reason that sounds extreme is because it matches not only David's anger at the wickedness that these rulers and kings can show, but it also shows how great God's justice and victory will be. The greater the evil, the greater the justice and the power needed to overthrow it. David had no ability to remove that power by himself. He couldn't do it. David could not wipe them from existence. David was forced to flee from his home. David was forced to flee from his family, his loved ones, his safety. He ended up hiding in caves to escape the wrath of King Saul. David was being crushed under the hopelessness of having powerful men be against him. So in his weakness, in that fear, in his uncertainty of the future, David turns to God to achieve what he cannot. And my question for you today is where do you turn? This past week has been extremely tough for me. I recently moved out of my apartment that I really loved into a house that I thought would be a good option uh, to save me some money, to be a good steward of my finances. But after a week of being there and sleeping there, I started to get really sick. I started to have major allergy symptoms and headache and a head fog every time I got up in the morning. And it turns out that behind the drywall and in the walls of the house and in the drawers and the cabinets, there's a major mold issue in the house. And because I'm immunocompromised, it was really dangerous for me to live there. So I had to get out. I had to leave into the, of the house and all my stuff behind. The, this house I just moved into and I had no idea what I would do or where I would go. And it was also finals week for seminary. And also because of my reaction to the mold started to have a flare-up of my Crohn's disease. And I also had to prepare for this sermon. <laughs> So this past week, I found myself in Gypsy Coffee Company downtown, and I was working on this near 20-page essay of my Hebrew class, and we were asked to write about Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And I spent about 10 hours that day in this coffee house just writing and, and translating from the Hebrew and doing all these things and, and reading commentaries. And every time I would take a break from that work, I would turn and I was just overwhelmed by the weight of my circumstances. I was Googling apartment options. I was calling friends and families and sending emails. I was doing math to try to figure out how I was going to make it all work financially. And then when my break was over, I would turn back to my essay about Abraham and Isaac. And eventually I got to a part in the essay at the end where the professors asked us to, uh, how, how would you preach this? How would you write a sermon on this uh, chapter of Genesis 22? And I'm sitting there and I'm writing about how Abraham had to live by faith in God, that even if Isaac died, that he believed that God would bring him back to life that he was able to walk in faith enough to walk up that mountain and to sacrifice his son because he believed in God and his promises. And that the main point of that passage is that God will provide and God will keep his promises. 
And then I would turn back to my computer for my break, and I was starting to Google, and I was starting to do math, and I was starting to figure out how I was going to make my life work. I hope you can see the issue here sooner than I did. I was a fool. It was not wrong of me to plan for tomorrow. It was not wrong of me to work hard to find a solution, but it was hypocritical of me to turn to worrying in my own ability to fix things rather than turning to God in my situation and living in the faith that he will provide even if that meant things would be difficult. And provide, God did. The Ustries have generously allowed me to stay with them until I find a place to live. My finals were finished. My sermon is written. My crones will be treated. And yes, all of those things were and they are difficult. But I had to learn that in my suffering, I had to turn to God because that, I had no ability to fix it all. I just couldn't do it. And David knows this too. He knew it. He knew that from the bottom of the cave that he could reach out in his pain and in his suffering and he could turn to God in faith that God would deliver victory against evil that David could not earn. And I'm not sure what that pain or that evil is for you. And I'm not sure how you have decided to try to earn victory over it. But as we see in this passage, David had a faith in God that he would not sit idly by and watch evil reign, but that God would achieve a victory only that God could earn. And David's hope for victory over evil is our assurance that God has already earned it. From the moment that sin entered this world, from the moment of our disobedience, God loved us so much that he had a victory plan set in motion. God came as a man, Jesus Christ, to earn the victory that we cannot. And it is in that victory, and it is in that justice that we turn to in our faith and our hope and our security. Jesus is victorious. And as Christians, we get to share in that victory with him. Because there is a day soon when Christ will return, and he will make all things new, and those who believe in him will be made new and will reside with him forever. David says here in this chapter in verse 11, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Our reward is our salvation in Christ. And God's justice and victory is and will be so strong and so clear that no one will be able to deny his justice and his goodness. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, all men shall be forced by the sight of the final judgment to see that there is a God and that he is the righteous ruler of the universe. Two things will come out clearly after all. There is a God and there is a reward for the righteous. Sin and suffering will be no more. Evil rulers and the powers that be that work in sin will be eliminated forever. We will have no need for fallen people to lead us in positions of power. Why? Because we will reside with our God and our King for all eternity. Us, the righteous, will rejoice. Surely there is one just, and there is one perfect and victorious ruler, and that is our God. Point two, our victorious God, we share in Christ's victory over all sin and suffering. So then what does it look like for us to read this passage 
and live in this time as we wait for Christ to return? How do we handle times when wicked leaders like those David is writing about rule over us? I have two final points of application, and the first is this. From the end of the Civil War until 1910, literacy among freed slaves went from 20% to 70%. Why? Well, though Andrew Johnson did his best to weaken Reconstruction benefits for freed slaves, many Christians saw a need and they filled it. Churches gave spaces not only for freed slaves to join in leadership positions, but also started programs to teach freed slaves how to read. The point here is this, while we cannot earn victory over evil ourselves, that does not mean that we cannot be agents of God's good work in this world. When we see injustice and we see needs in our community, we ultimately trust in God that he will bring justice and he will provide. But we also thank God that he uses us as his people to seek that justice and to meet those needs. If you're interested to learning how to partner with Trinity in our attempts to do these things for the sake of God's kingdom, I encourage you to talk to one of the deacons. They gather needs and organize ways for the church to help. But the second application is this, and though application is often about what we do, it is also about what we believe. And I think this passage has a lot to tell us about God's victory, power, and justice, and how we are to live in it. At middle school camp a few weeks ago, I heard this example, and I wanted to share it with you today. And it involves a little participation from you all. There's a song most people grew up in church knowing, and that I learned as a kid, and I'm going to start singing it, but I want you to join along with me as soon as you know it, and then I'm going to stop singing so that we can sing together, and I won't punish the people in the live stream with my mic going straight to them. Now, I'm not as confident as Blake about singing in front of the church, but here we go. The song goes like this. Please sing it with me if you know it. He's got the whole world in his hands. There are a lot of verses there. (laughs) But let me ask you this. When did you start rolling your eyes at that song? When did the weight of the world become so heavy that you stopped trusting God to lift it and you took it on your own shoulders instead? Friends, we have to let go of any idea that we can find safety and security and hope or victory in anything besides God. There's no politician. There's no amount of money. There's no personal assurance that you can earn anything outside of God that will provide any lasting comfort. We must not look to rulers for victory because Christ has already earned it for us. Let's pray. Lord God, in our weakness and in our foolishness, we turn too often to idols to grant us what only you can give. Forgive us of this, O God. Draw near to us in our failures and help us to trust in you and to trust in your justice, to trust in you and your goodness, to trust in you alone, God, and your victory. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.